they're using debt as an instrument to control regional and local governments. In order to do the very populism that the city manager system is meant to prevent on the local level, uh, Putin is very happy to do it at the federal national level. Because everywhere is very far from Moscow if you really believe in yourself. Listening to the Naked Pravda, I'm your host Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. Last week you got the Christmas episode, which had nothing to do with Christmas, and now you're getting the New Year's special, which has nothing to do with the New Year or even the old year. On today's show, we're talking about the Kremlin's approach to local and national management, focusing specifically on how debt and borrowing operate here. Exciting stuff, right? As you can imagine. You're in store for lots of nudity, explosions, gratuitous violence. I don't know what else. Mystery. It's not all fireworks, folks. Not everything can be Rick and Morty or The Crown or whatever you're into. You know what's exciting? Elections. <coughs> what a thrill! This is this is not a story about elections either. They don't have elections in most Russian cities and towns. As a result, they don't actually have mayors, as you'd understand them. They have what are called city managers, appointed professionals recruited by regional officials to do what they're told and adhere as strictly as possible to this or that austerity measure. Defended publicly as a means of curbing the influence of special interests and political machines, the city manager system is actually part of the Kremlin's deliberate policy of reinforcing its vertical control over Russian politics. Some people call this the power vertical. You may have heard of it. Roughly speaking, everything I just said, those are some of the main conclusions presented in an article published this week at Medusa by Kirill Kazantsev and Alexandra Rumantseva, two political scientists at the Center for Advanced Governance. That's interesting stuff, right? After all, scholars regularly cite Russia's over-centralization as one of the main causes for its economic and democratic struggles. After reading and translating this text, I wanted instantly to talk to somebody who studies reform efforts in Russia across different political regimes. Lucky for me, I knew how to reach Yuval Weber, who's currently writing a book called The Russian Economy. A longer, more descriptive title is undoubtedly waiting to pounce, but I don't have it with me right now. Anyway, in this book, he asks why pro-market economic reform efforts in Russia follow similar trajectories even across different types of government like monarchy, communism, sovereign democracy... Dr. Weber is the Bren Chair of Russian Military and Political Strategy at Marine Corps University's Krulak Center and a Research Assistant Professor at Texas A&M's Bush School in Washington, D.C. Kremlinologists have been arguing since the, the Soviet Union, I don't know, maybe before for all I know, but they've been arguing about how Russia is either ruled or misruled or governed or misgoverned and, you know, I think, it's, I think it's actually still one of the most interesting questions that, that we can ask today. And when it comes to local government, one of the things that stands out in Russia is the widespread lack of direct mayoral elections. Uh, most municipalities, they rely on city managers or other kind of political appointees. Do you think, so this, this kind of gets to this question of is, is Russia ruled or misruled or governed or misgoverned. Do you think that these city managers, these appointees, are they doing a decent job? Or are they misruling or misgoverning? 
the core to your question is, how is Russia ruled, misruled, governed, or poorly governed? Those are constructs when we think about, let's say, in the United States or sort of like the West more broadly. We have this idea that local officials are supposed to not only, you know, uh, help enforce laws, but also to optimize growth at the local level. Like that is their key job. Um, is the mayor bringing in jobs? Are they, you know, building the road so that people can do whatever it is they want to do more efficiently? The key function of any local official in Russia, going back to the time of Ivan the Great, is, is that person increasing resilience to external pressures? And is that person increasing stability in terms of domestic pressures? So what the city manager is supposed to do is not optimize growth, but optimize external resilience and internal stability. And so when you then view the issues with city managers versus elected mayors, the city manager is a far more preferable system to basically Russia and to the Kremlin. And that's been true for a very long time. So I think in that sense, for the Kremlin, a city manager who is responsible basically to a regional board, so basically these regional elites who are themselves responsible to the Kremlin is a far more preferable and efficient system. What about in terms of maximizing growth? And from the kind of layman's perspective, if you're talking about misrule, you wouldn't be considering necessarily the, you know, what Putin thinks or what the presidential administration thinks. What if you're just Joe Schmo living in Omsk. Say you're a small business owner, you're just a, or I don't know, a homeless person living in one of these cities. Like, is, are you, would you then also, would it also be possible to argue, oh, well, the city manager's better? Because I mean, the the defense that I've seen or that is present in the article that Medusa published is that there are safeguard against political machines like Tammany Hall and stuff like that. That, you know, that if you leave it, and you kind of see this, what this reminded me of in some sense in the modern day is, are all the, the propositions in California, because they've kind of been hijacked by corporate interests in a lot of ways that, you know, like, you know, I think it was Uber and Lyft spent, you know, millions or billions of dollars on, on some initiative to fight back against one of the laws that, that classified their, their workers as employees, as opposed to independent contractors and so on. And that, you know, that money and influence, you can, you can kind of toy with the, with voting in a way that you can't when it's professionally and bureaucratically run, I guess. And so is there an argument to be made in the Russian context that, not not just that it's in the Kremlin's interest in terms of the power vertical and so on, but that this is a, a true safeguard. Using political appointees and city managers is a true safeguard against the excesses of democracy and corruption and influence and things like that. So sure. So I think there's there's really the like there's two things to say about that. First of all, there is no political system which is, which functions perfectly, even the the best designed ones. Because when you have the excess of, let's say, local control, you think it's good. The voters want to do something or aggregated interests want to do something, even businesses, they should have the opportunity to do that. But if the citizens aren't responsible and the businesses aren't responsible or whatever corporate community, then you can have basically California in which you are legislating through proposition. And then it's just a series of particular interests basically hijacking the state. But you can also then think like what is happening in Russia is the fear from the government, like the fear from the Kremlin is, you know, the Russian word, you know, the dual power, the voyevlasti. And that is something that has happened in Russian history before in living memory in the 1990s, but also times of troubles, the civil war, the revolution at each period in Russian history, 
in which there hasn't been one single streamline of authority from the Kremlin into the dustiest corner of the empire or the Soviet Union or the contemporary Russian Federation, then essentially you can have these local particular interests because everywhere is very far from Moscow if you really believe in yourself. And it's that which the Kremlin is afraid of. And so it's that which they want these city managers who are not beholden to the voters because the voters want their lives to be better. But their lives to be better is difficult to manage in a country the size of Russia because what may be good for the citizens of Omsk may not be appropriate for the citizens of Nalchik, which may not be appropriate for the citizens of Kaliningrad, which may not be appropriate for the citizens of Vladivostok. And so even though Russia is a federal country, there should be, when you have federalism, you should have um, experimentation between the different regions in order to figure out what's the best way to, you know, provide services or promote growth or provide for stability. But once you have literally dozens of places doing different things, that essentially means that some are going to be more successful and others are going to be less successful. And then that puts the onus on the Kremlin to either reward those who are doing better, punish those who are doing worse. But then that shifts what basically the Kremlin is responding to. They then have to respond to all the local conditions, interests, successes and failures of places, you know, that span, you know, half the globe rather than providing one clear set of, you know, decisions or one clear set of guidelines from Moscow that locals are supposed to then implement. And so even if, you know, whatever the Kremlin wants is not efficient for everyone, it certainly is better in terms of, you know, increasing external resilience and increasing domestic stability. And that's the fundamental trade-off that the Kremlin has always, and this goes back hundreds of years, is always willing to do. They're willing to have less growth in exchange for less experimentation if the payoff is more resilience and stability. How do you reconcile the the one-size-fits-all approach that the Kremlin is sort of known for with the fact that you have areas of Russia that are as disparate as St. Petersburg and Chechnya? Because it seems like it's not one-size-fits-all. It seems like they they allow for pockets of... I don't, it's not, I mean, independence isn't the right word, or maybe it's just that the North Caucasus is an outlier here, but it's not as though the governing approach across Russia is the same. It does seem like there's variation. So how does that fit with the, the strict power vertical? That's actually like a great question. And this goes, and like, I think that's the other main key feature of Russia as a patrimonial state going back again to the time of like Ivan the Great and, you know, like the princes of Muscovy. Instead of basically all the local regions experimenting, what's good for us in our area versus other areas? In a patrimonial state, you have that local leader instead of doing experimentation on his own or trying to find better ways to do stuff like in whichever region, you have that person negotiating directly with the Kremlin. We want to do this in our area. Here's what I'm willing to do for you in order to increase your power and control in Moscow right now relative to us. So, for example, like Ramzan Kadyrov in Chechnya has an incredible amount of autonomy. The reason he has that is he has a pretty credible threat of being able to impose a fairly large scale violence like in the North Caucasus and through terrorism like throughout the rest of Russia. Therefore, he's able to rule his area, Chechnya, in a way that like no one else can, because he has that thing that he's able to negotiate with. Similarly, in Tatarstan, 
Tatarstan has a long-standing culture, has a, you know, its own language. It has everything um, that it needs in order to develop its own cultural basis. Because the local leader there, Minikhanov, is fairly powerful within Tatarstan, one of the things that the Kremlin has done is try to limit the amount of Tatar language instruction in Tatarstan in order to use that as something to make sure that he does not essentially become too powerful or that he does not become a person that other regions in an environment of austerity and in an environment of people being unsure about how long Putin is going to you know, be able to carry on, that they don't look to him as a model for regional governance. And so whether you have someone who is being punished by the Kremlin or is being rewarded by the Kremlin, the explanation for the variation in regional control or regional autonomy is because of those individuals and their ability to lobby Putin or the presidential administration directly. And so that essentially is how you explain regional variation, but essentially Kremlin control. done some work on on the debt bubble or the the debt crisis or the vicious cycle i don't know if i'm using the right terminology here but the it's it involves debt and it involves russian localities the basic background here is you know before the 2012 elections and before the 2018 elections putin was facing considerable amount of if not outright opposition you know outside of you know you know urban areas a lot of widespread apathy and dissatisfaction so in order to do the very populism that the city manager system is meant to prevent on the local level, Putin is very happy to do it at the federal national level. So ahead of those elections, he came up with these different programs of basically increasing spending at the local or regional levels. Here was the thing. Those promises were made at the federal level, but the funding for those have to come at the regional and local level. So all the regional and local heads were basically put in the situation of unfunded mandates. The people were told you're going to get more health spending, education spending, social services spending, but they had to find the money within their existing budgets to do so. So there's a few places which are wealthy enough, like the big cities, you know, the energy producing areas who can basically pay for this out of pocket. They just have the funds. Most places can't. So what they had to do is they borrowed money from the government which which had a finite amount to lend out. So a lot of these regions had to then borrow money from basically private banks, which charged much higher interest rates. And these places were not doing well to begin with. So these regional areas were in a situation in which the voters expected, whether the mayor was elected or appointed or a city manager type, that basically the government was going to give more money. Those regional and local authorities had to find the money. They largely borrowed that through private sources. So they now have, like anyone who's been in, you know, in debt, uh, two sources of pressure. One is to produce and the other is to pay back. But if the underlying sort of customer or the underlying client here is the population, which is otherwise not that wealthy, that puts these regional local authorities in a bind because where are they going to come up with this money? And so that's where the Kremlin was able to come in and use debt as an instrument to increase 
local oversight and control over these local and regional officials by effectively offering them a deal. You do X and whatever X is for like that local region. We'll basically roll over your existing debt to private banks and lend you that same amount of money at lower interest rates. And you can then use that that money that you're saving in terms of anticipated interest repayment, both interest and principal, to then use for whatever. You can put it in your own pocket, which is you know, <laughs> not good, uh, but you can also um, use that to then fulfill the mandates that we've essentially given you. And so that has been the way that, and this is like truly medieval when you sort of think about it, even though we're using modern language, they're using debt as an instrument to control regional and local governments by essentially putting these officials between a rock and a hard place, disappointing the people or disappointing the Kremlin. Talking to Dr. Weber, I was reminded of an article written by military expert Alexander Goltz, published by The Insider and summarized in Medusa's daily newsletter this week. So check that out if you're not already subscribed. Anyway, Goltz in this article argues that Russia's military-industrial complex operates as a giant pyramid scheme. Goltz says that Russia's defense industry is actually in debt thanks to budget cutbacks and sustained production that's necessitated billions of dollars in loans. I asked Dr. Weber how this borrowed money, which the Kremlin has been handling through rounds of debt forgiveness and early loan repayments, compares to the debt being accrued by towns and cities across Russia. It's not quite the same thing, he explains. The thing about the military-industrial complex like within Russia, I guess there's like two big things to really think about it. One is that it's largely unreformed even from Soviet times. It's smaller than before because basically... Russian military spending compared to Soviet military spending is just much less. But in terms of what survived, uh, which either didn't close down or, um, you know, got converted to like other uses, the thing about like the military industrial complex is that it is still basically divorced from the rest of the economy and basically the, the world economy in general. And so even if military spending goes down, a lot of these are in closed towns. So it's just basically there's There are state orders that come in. There's basically supplies that come in from the outside. But these are not people who are experiencing globalization in any sort of direct way. So part of what sort of helps the federal government and, you know, these particular firms or like the military industrial complex in general is that the relative weakness of like the Russian ruble. And this is like a conscious policy that's been followed by the central bank to not defend the price of the ruble. That actually helps all of the, the military industrial complex because the ruble just goes farther when you're not buying imported goods. So the difference here is if like, let's say we're a couple of regular guys in like Moscow or St. Petersburg or Vladivostok, places that are fundamentally like tied to the rest of the economy, we rely on imports in order to like do our businesses or just like enjoy things or like whatever. So when the Russian ruble falls in value, our ability to import is much less. Now, the government, as I said, is following this as a conscious strategy to do what's called import substitution industrialization. It's sort of like a form of protectionism. It's like a tariff in the sense that if you can't buy stuff from abroad, you're more likely to buy that stuff that's domestically made. Now, when we think about 
those sectors or those firms which are really not tied to the international market whatsoever except to export things. A weak ruble is actually good for them because the stuff that they're they're not really importing very much yet they continue to export. And so that in a way is the government can reduce the military spending because the money that they're using is not going to buy more expensive stuff from abroad. It's just buying stuff that is produced within Russia. So the greater purchasing power parity, the greater purchasing power of the Russian ruble compared to other international currencies basically helps that entire military industrial complex survive because they don't have to buy stuff from abroad. And so that's how they can continue with modernization, but without having to worry as much about currency depreciation. So is the military, are these, are these defense contractors or defense manufacturers going into debt? Because that was the premise of the Goltz article, I thought. And so if they're going into debt, it would seem as though they are not getting sufficient funding, even with a depreciated ruble. I would just think off the top of my head, you you go into debt when basically you need to like increase capacity. People don't borrow money, you know, just for the fun of it. There's something that you need to do in order to make that happen or to basically make use of that money. And, th- and th- I think this is true for, um, you know, the entire like military industrial complex is it's been quite clear after six years of sort of concerted confrontation with NATO and the West and the fact that it's clear at this point that sanctions aren't going away anytime soon, but it's also clear from Russia's performance, like military performance in Syria, around the Black Sea, with private military companies like in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and so forth, it's clear what the Russian military is able and not able to do. There is no point at this juncture to have like a gigantic army because the only two basically adversaries that can also muster gigantic armies are China and basically NATO. With NATO, basically we're in a situation of nuclear deterrence that's been true for decades. With China, you know, best friends forever. So basically there's no point to have big armies. But it's clear that what Russia can do is increase its capability to overwhelm basically these regional adversaries and these smaller, you know, irritant nations. Having enough military power to intervene into Syria and to places where the United States doesn't have extremely strong interests. The ability to overwhelm, if necessary, you know, Azerbaijani forces. Stuff like that. And so the Soviet military inheritance, none of that is particularly useful for those sorts of conflicts. So the core of Russia's military modernization is really bringing the military and military capabilities into the 21st century, which is to acknowledge that Russia is not going to really fight NATO. That's also, I think, been true for like decades. It's not really going to fight China because China is just too big for that. But what it can do is prepare for war in Syria. It can prepare for conflict, let's say, um, if it has to intervene in a serious way into the North Caucasus once more. What if Iran becomes not like one of these other, you know, best friends forever, but becomes overnight for whatever reason, like a true enemy? What if there's conflict with Turkey? So those sorts of middle-sized regional powers that Russian military is not yet fully capable of fighting those wars on a sustained basis. And really where you get to like the core of like what Russia needs to do or what Russia is doing. I'm not saying like I'm giving my opinion. 
I don't think my opinion counts for very much in this context. <laughs> but in terms of their naval shipbuilding, they have one, you know, aircraft carrier, the, the Admiral Kuznetsov. The Admiral Kuznetsov is going to be maintained for great power projection purposes and just status purposes only. What Russia doesn't have is they don't have the smaller and medium-sized ships. They've been building those in order to basically have a greater presence in the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, the Mediterranean, to an extent, you know, the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. They don't need aircraft carriers and they're not going to build any more. They need the smaller ships so that they can essentially develop like maritime doctrine as well as marine doctrine in the sense of how do you get ships close enough to shore so that you can basically put the Marines or special forces like onto the adversary's beaches. They don't have that. So, for example, in the 2008 war with Georgia, they were they realized like, oh, we don't basically have those medium sized ships that can permit us to do amphibious landings to do like what in the U.S. context, you know, what can the Marines do? You know, the Air Force comes, they bomb a bunch of things. The Navy then brings their ships closer. Then the from the naval ships, basically the Marines go onto shore and shoot at anything that moves. Like that's how you sort of like put all these things in, in, in order so that then the army can come in, put in uh, whatever. After the 2008 Georgia war and Russia realized that they didn't have these combined arms capabilities, that's when they wanted to buy basically these ships from France, like the Mistral class ships. They weren't able to buy that ship, uh, you know, given the political sensitivities of that. They still have be- yet been able to replace that Mistral class ship. And so that's the sort of thing that they need to be building in time in order to basically land their troops on the shores of insert country here. And that's basically the modernization that is basically putting Russia in the 21st century and getting it away from, you know, putting a million and a half men, you know, running across the plains of Europe. And so that's the stuff that they still need to build. The world's not becoming any less dangerous. And that's the stuff that the military industrial complex is borrowing money for to try to be able to build up basically those capabilities aimed at regional powers and not at NATO. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. Happy New Year. This is an English language podcast from Medusa, if if you didn't get that already. On today's show, we heard from Yuval Weber, the Bren Chair of Russian Military and Political Strategy at Marine Corps University's Krulak Center, and a Research Assistant Professor at Texas A&M's Bush School in Washington, D.C. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show, And I hope you will recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever the heck you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. You write the review. Oh, this is such a good show. Click, 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 star, star, star. More people see it. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Thank you for listening and come back soon.